as soon as I got the dishes on the counter, my mom was so angry, she took her arm and drug it across the counter and smashed all the dishes I just washed onto the floor and breaking them. And I'm like, where were you 10 minutes ago? I wouldn't have to wash these dishes. But not to be outdone, my dad threw the kitchen counter, not the stuff on the kitchen counter, but the entire counter up off of the boxes and across the room. I also um, started to experience some changes in my mental state. Bipolar disorder is um, a mood disorder that has a person that moving back and forth from intense feelings of depression. And then you move from that to a, a sense of anxiety, a sense of, of mania, so to speak. So it's, it's um, like driving a Volkswagen bug 110 miles an hour down the freeway. It'll do it, but not for long. And so I would drive it through the day. And then when I get that thing home at night, it would just fall apart. I remember um, falling in my knees on the front doorstep of my house, begging God to help me. And in that moment, I could feel the very arms of God around me, holding me. And his spirit whispered in my ear, it's okay, I'm right here with you. You're not alone. You can ask for help. Have you ever been in your head? You know, obsessing about something that was said, an event, person, or circumstance that totally consumes your attention for a period of time. Have you found yourself so depressed about something that you couldn't even find the strength to get out of bed? Do you find yourself emotionally swinging from one extreme to another? This type of thing happens to everyone on occasion, but maybe for you, it happens a lot. Do you feel alone in your struggle and that no one understands you? How do you know if a way of thinking is abnormal? How do you cope with these extreme feelings? Can God bring healing to your life? And what does that healing look like? These are the topics that I want to discuss with our guest today as he shares his life change story with us. I've actually never met our guest in person, and he is Zooming all the way from Queen Creek, Arizona, which is just a suburb of Phoenix. I'm Eric Hutchinson, and this is the If Nothing Changes podcast. So, hey, new friend, why don't you introduce yourself and let the listeners know who you are? Hi, um, I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ. I like to start by saying that, which is the coolest thing I get to say about myself. Um, I'm currently learning to steward the bipolar disorder that I have that God created in me on purpose and for his purpose. My name's Dustin. Hey, Dustin. So glad you're with us today and so glad that you agreed to do this. I'm excited about hearing your story. So I always like to kind of start to give the listeners and myself, since I haven't really met you before, a little bit of background. Where are you, where, where are you born? Where did you grow up? And uh, tell us a little bit about your family of origin. Sure thing. I'm, I find that uh, you find your way back home no matter what happens in life. So I was actually born and raised in Mesa, Arizona, which is just down the street from where I'm at right now. And uh, I was born uh, into a, a rather large, a rather large family. There was mom and dad, and I had three brothers. And so it was just um, a whole bunch of fun at our house with all of us kind of running ripshod through there and my, my mom trying to hurt, hurt us together before we break everything up, which was fun. Um, and we, um, we've we stayed in Arizona almost most of my, most of my life. And then 
you know, the first opportunity I had, I, I ran as far as I could, as fast as I could to see the world and eventually found myself right back where I started, which is kind of nice. Oh, well, that's neat. Well, where are you in the pecking order? Are you number one? Are you the oldest or the middle or the, the last of the boys? I am two of the four of us. Uh, my older brother was kind of wild and went out there and did a lot of, uh, uh, of interesting ways of living life, kind of uh, trading paint if you're a NASCAR fan, trading paint with life, so to speak. And so I found myself in the role of um, kind of helping raise my younger brothers and keep things going on in the house. And so I kind of took that role as well. So I'm, I'm two of four. So what was it like growing up in your home? Did you have a mom and dad the entire time that you were a youth or how, what was that like? Well, it was, it's my mom and dad were always married, but not always together. And so I'll tell you a little bit about my dad. My dad's a, a quiet, strong man of character, which is a really cool thing to, to understand about him. He's a, uh, a tradesman, so he's always constantly working with his hands. He's a, a skilled carpenter and skilled craftsman. Um, but if you've ever known anything about the, the trade, you know that uh, work is not always easily available. We kind of lived feast or famine. Uh, we'd have like ramen noodles one weekend and, and steak dinners the next. I, I remember uh, one particular Christmas, my mom made us give toys to a local church for a toy drive in October, only to have to receive our Christmas from that same toy drive that same year. What's cool is that the toy drive was age and gender specific. So I ended up giving myself my own Christmas presents that year. So it was kind of nice. I got my stuff back. I felt good about that. And but my dad um, worked hard, but also um, kept a lot of his self to himself, kept a lot of his pain to himself and and taught me early on that manning up and, and stuffing that pain down and keeping that away from other folks was really the only way to be able to approach that. And um, even though he had compassion, deep compassion for other people, if we had a if we had a open couch and someone was in need, we had a person that was living on the couch for a while. Um, it was the the way that we dealt with our own internal struggle stayed to ourselves. So it was this interesting dichotomy. Um, my mom, she was uh, probably one of the strongest people I know. And she kind of had to be because between dad and the four of us boys, uh, she was raising, raising us all as a Herculean task I wouldn't wish on anybody. But she was doing um, her best to kind of keep the family afloat during those lean times. So if she wasn't uh, doing things at home, she was working two or three jobs to bring in more of an income. And this often left her kind of frazzled and on edge. In, in Arizona, we have a, a children's home called Sunshine Acres Children's Home in Mesa. And it started up in the in the early 50s. And she was one of the first 50 kids that was there, her and her brother and her sister. And um, they were adopted by my grandmother, who I say in the very Disney sense of the word, <laughs> uh, my grandmother, because she wanted a son, but had to take the package deal, which means you have to take the son and the two daughters too. So my mom spent her entire youth um, working on earning love and earning approval. And so that kind of translated into how she interacted with me and my brothers in, in our life too, which kind of stamped me performing for approval early on in my life as well. And so when I say that my parents were um, together, but not, or always married, but not always together, um, the stress and the strain that would um, go on with the limited resources and kind of trying to keep things together would wear on their their relationship. And they would often get into these um, verbal and physical fights, each one kind of giving as um, much as they received. I, I remember one time um, my brother and I were doing um, chores. We were doing the dishes and I got wash and rinse and he got dry and put away, which is just a scam because like all the work is in the washing and rinsing. So I'm all washing and rinsing the dishes and um, my parents are fighting in the kitchen right there next to us. And as soon as I got the dishes on the counter, my mom was so angry. She took her arm and drug it across the counter and smashed all the dishes I just washed 
onto the floor and breaking them. And I'm like, where were you 10 minutes ago? I wouldn't have to wash these dishes, you know, but not to be outdone. My dad threw the kitchen counter, not, not the stuff on the kitchen counter, but the entire counter up off of the boxes and across the room. Those types of conflicts um, happened a lot. That found them um, in a strained relationship off and on throughout my childhood. So there were several times where um, dad would go live in a new house and they would be separated and we would have to figure out if we're staying with mom or going with dad. And then they would get back together and we would do that three or four or five times um, throughout my childhood. So I did experience what it's like to be in kind of a separated home and at the same time still had access to both my parents and then being able to be back and reunited in that family. But that did develop a sense of uncertainty as to kind of how stable things might be. My arch nemesis growing up was my older brother. Like we both lived in Arizona and we didn't have a professional football team. So he chose the Dallas Cowboys. So I obviously had to choose the San Francisco 49ers because they were hating each other at the time. I've never been to San Francisco, had no care about them. You know, his favorite color was red. So mine was blue. And that's the whole reason. So we had that relationship going through and there was a lot of um, an, an antagonistic relationship there. And he was also, uh, uh, we'll probably talk a little more about this later on. He was also, um, because he was four years older than me, abusive in a lot of different ways towards me. And so uh, as a product of our house and also a product of some of his life choices. So he was the rebel. That makes me the rule follower and the good person. I was the one that if he was the, the uh, cautionary tale as what not to do, I was going to be the bright shining example of what to do. And you couple that with my mom's um, understanding of how love is earned and love is, um, and, and degrees of love are earned based on your performance. I was really wanting that performance. So um, I found out the, at an early age that I was kind of smarter than your average bear. Uh, my parents uh, took me to get tested when I was little and found out I have an IQ that puts me in the top 2% globally, which sounds impressive, but that and five bucks will get you a bowl of soup at Denny's. It doesn't really do much. But at the time, I've, that, that gave me this sense of feeling special and important that my friends from Boston call being wicked smart. It was that. And so I would latch onto that as much as I could to, as, a, as a, a way of being able to get favor and love and attention, primarily from my folks. Because you see, when I came home with a report card that had straight A's, they'd stop yelling at each other and they'd see the report card and they'd say, hey, good job. We're proud of you. Goes on the refrigerator, gold star, and I feel good. Problem is, report cards only come out like every eight weeks. I need them to love me like sooner and closer together and, and, and balance that out, which eventually led me into a whole bunch of different ways of performance in school, um, with, uh, athletics, music, academics, clubs, you, church, you name it, just to kind of do the dance to get the cookie for it. So what did Dustin think about himself? I mean, what did you believe about yourself? Were you self-confident or not so much? Not at all. <laughs> uh, one of the things about one of the things about the highly intelligence, a highly intelligent kid at a very young age is that intelligence can be a bane when you're little. Um, I didn't speak for the first three years of my life to anybody. Uh, the first thing my mom remembers me saying is, may I have a glass of water, please? And it's because my oldest brother did all the talking for me. And so I would be talking and I'd be talking in my room on my own or wherever else, but never to anybody else. Um, and when I would talk to people, I could think things through pretty well at a very young age. My grandmother used to say, there goes that little man over there walking around. And so we would have these deep conversations where I would talk a mile a minute about a bunch of different stuff that none of the adults around me understood or could follow. And so um, it made me feel uh, outcast outside. 
And then when I got to school and I wanted to talk about, and it was second grade and I wanted to talk about Isaac Asimov or talk about Kafka's Metamorphosis. And they wanted to talk about uh, what they saw Yogi Bear do on the weekend, which is fine. You know, I, I liked that cartoon too, but I had other things I wanted to talk about. Um, it would, it made it even harder um, to do that. So I spent a good portion of my formative years when I was younger, just kind of feeling kind of outcast and outside. Uh, couple that with the fact that I was the skinniest, shortest, smallest little person you ever saw in your life. Um, I had this big poofy haircut in the 70s. So I looked like a Q-tip when I walked around most of the time. But um, I didn't, I didn't stand out physically. I wasn't very athletically gifted. Um, and um, I was very self-conscious about being smart. And so it's this dichotomous view of having this uh, thing that you latch onto yourself or identity that you're proud of yourself within your family, but then having no external way of having that latch out to the rest of the world. Um, what I did find out though, is by being um, a little bit extra brainy and I could learn how to manipulate people with my words pretty well. And so I would manipulate people for love and affection and, and um, everything from lunch money to will you be my friend? I used to say that my one true talent was um, helping other people have my way. And so it was a way of being able to, um, to get some control in a world where I didn't have much. So it, it kind of gave me that, that sense of control, but it also stamped codependency into my life. Because you see, in order for me to manipulate you, I have to care an awful lot more about what you think of me than I do about who, how I see myself. So lost completely in that is me. And gained in all of that is is the thing I want, the image I want you to see. So I haven't heard you mention God in any way. Was religion or God a part of your childhood? It was. Um, we grew up uh, in the church. What was interesting is that I, uh, my mom was also very much a pillar of the church. Um, Sunshine Acres Children's Home is a Christian children's home, so it's it's faith based. And so uh, my grandmother was a very staunch believer. Um, I'm not entirely sure which denomination, but it was very strict. And so <laughs> she was uh, she was always um, continuously connected to the church uh, growing uh, my, my mom was growing up and then brought that in for us. So we we grew up in the church. My mom worked at the church as a volunteer. We were at the church quite a bit. And uh, being a brand new kid, I absorbed a lot of that uh, of, of the uh, scripture and a lot of the theology and, and, you know, got fascinated with eschatology when I was like eight. So trying to understand, you know, what's going to go, what's going to happen and where we're going, what's going to end up at the very end of things. And so um, I really wrapped myself into the, the book knowledge of church. Um, but because I didn't know who Jesus was, I didn't have a personal relationship with him. It was all just kind of a checklist of facts. Um, but it was it was still performance oriented too. I found myself teaching vacation Bible school and being a leader in the youth group and singing in the church choir and was always the kid that stood up and preached the youth sermon <laughs> whenever we had that thing come around once a year, um, but had no actual individual connection with with Christ. I was I like to tell people that I have different days for when when um, uh, Jesus became my Lord versus my Savior. Like he became my savior when I was five years old because I was able to talk with the the uh, pastor and a couple other folks about the the fine points of salvation uh, as they appear in the book and how they uh, how it all makes sense and didn't really understand that there's a whole lordship aspect of that and a relationship aspect of that till many, many years later. So whenever you were in high school, did the performance mode that you were in with your mom and you, you were trying to be the good child, 
versus your brother. So did you experiment with anything, any substance or anything like that in high school? Did any peer pressure uh, get a hold of you? Did you sow any wild oats in high school or did you stay straight and narrow? It probably helps to back up a little bit and talk a little bit about um, more of the dynamic relationship between me and my older brother. Um, my old brother was my primary abuser and he abused me every way you can think of. Um, his verbal abuse was surprisingly good given his grades in school. Um, I remember, um, his, um, uh, emotional abuse involved like trapping me in small spaces, threatening to, to kill me in my sleep stuff. I believed he would do. I had a realization about, um, about a year and a half ago that I don't face the shower. When I take a shower, I face away from the water because I get a panic reaction. Um, and, God finally kind of revealed when in, in his timing that the reason that happens is when you're poor and you don't have a lot of money for the water bill, but you've got four dirty boys, you throw them in two at a time and you try to get them cleaned up as much. And every time I would be throwing him with my older brother, he would hold my face into the water and he it threatening to drown me. Now it's the shower, so it's not going to do that, but I didn't know that. And so it's kind of had that lasting impact. Um, physical abuse was his forte because he was four years older and much bigger. And so he would take advantage of that by kind of abusing me with anything he'd get his hands on, and including including his hands. Um, I remember one time when I was probably seven, he found my uh, my dad's bullwhip and he cracked it next to me and cut my leg. And I, I still got a little gummy worm shaped scar on that leg. And as soon as he saw the blood come out, he started to sing the sibling song. Kind of goes like, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Don't tell mom. Don't tell mom. Don't tell mom." It's like this. It's the sibling song. If you've got a sibling somewhere, you've probably sang that song once. It repeats. One of the the, the secret abuses for my brother, though, is the sexual abuse of me. I um, was f watched him do things with neighborhood kids growing up at a very young age and then was forced to participate so that I wouldn't tell. Um, and that abuse happened for several years. And I will say that the, um, the lasting impact on my life and um, the, the scars that that left are far deeper than any of the other physical stuff was. And it did shape a lot of my own um, addictive behavior. And the reason I mentioned that is because you had asked about vices in high school and the, the uh, combination of manipulation and the extra large intellect a lot, uh, got me going into um, sex. I had my uh, first willing sexual experience when I was uh, 12 years old with my 16 year old babysitter. It was my idea that I helped her suggest. It was um, a series of behavior that I was able to, to engage because I could, I could, speak very sweetly and very quickly and look very adorable in the process and essentially con people in the same way I had for, for food or for money. Um, my high school days found me moving from one partner to the other. The word promiscuity is far too weak a word to use to describe my behavior. A lot of times I was meeting um, girls for the sole purpose of having sex, knowing little or nothing about them, sometimes not even their names. What's interesting though, and we'll probably talk about it later, is, is even in that sinful action, God started a series of events in my life that would ultimately save my life later on down the road. So what did you do after high school? Did you go into college or did you go into the workforce? Um, I went to uh, a Bible college in Missouri with the idea of being a youth minister. I thought, hey, this is a job where they pay you to take kids to Disneyland. How hard could that be? Which was really not at all what the job was. But um I, I pulled up having never been to the college, um, having never been out of my own state, aside from um, mission trips to Mexico. I um, I showed up one day at the, the doorsteps of college when the semester started and um, 
was able to do that for about two years. I quickly learned how to manipulate the system around me and to talk to the people that were there and found myself right back in a lot of my old behaviors. I also um, started to experience some changes in my mental state, which happened right around college times too, where I couldn't regulate my moods as much as I used to. And I couldn't maintain a clarity of thought. I would have um, different seasons where in some seasons I would be so amped up and anxious that I couldn't sleep and I couldn't focus and I couldn't do anything um, in a straight line to, to save me. And other seasons where I couldn't pull myself out of bed if you asked me to. And neither of those seasons are great for academics. So being a brainy kid in high school and having everything come easy, it was probably my so at the end of my sophomore year where the college politely asked me not to come back after I had a 0.7 GPA, which you really have to try hard to get a 0.7 GPA. I mean, you've, that's, that's literally not even putting your name on the paper sometimes. When you get to be about 18 to 22 is when a lot of the onset of a lot of the mental health mood disorders like bipolar disorder really start to kick into high gear. I had met a, a girl at college my sophomore year and fallen for her quickly. Um, very quickly, in fact, to the point where we were engaged about five months after we met. And so we were scheduled to be married and she was a student there and, and I was about to not be a student there. And so I needed to come up with an idea very quickly on what to do for a living. So I talked to my local recruiter and um, enlisted in the Air Force where I spent the next four years. Um, uh, we got married right before I went in and I spent four years in the Air Force. So why don't you define what bipolar is and then kind of uh, let us know, when did you become aware that there was something, I mean, did you realize that something was happening in your brain or not? Bipolar disorder is um, a mood disorder that has a person that moving back and forth from intense feelings of depression, where it's difficult to do things physically. You, it's, it's more than just being sad. It's a feeling like you've been hit by a truck sometimes. Physically, you're aching and you're sore. You have no motivation to do the things that you love. You have no ability to be able to engage in the things that keep you supported. Um, a lot of times um, in these depressive times, I would um, uh, say, use all of my energy that I had at work and then have nothing left when I came home for my family. I would uh, go days without being able to take care of myself, including like um, brushing my teeth or taking showers. Um, there was it's this this uh, continuous uh, lack of ability that sits with depression. And then you move from that to a, a sense of anxiety, a sense of, of mania, so to speak. And in mania, your brain is constantly racing. Everything's going much faster than it should. Um, you have a lot of started but not finished projects, a ton of them. <laughs> um, it's difficult to regulate your moods so the people around you don't know if you're going to be overly affectionate or angry or frustrated or happy. Um, you, they don't know what's going to come from you on that. You um, get grandiose thoughts about, hey, if I tried really hard, I could be a brain surgeon. And so, or one of the ones I actually experienced was, hey, this online Texas Hold'em poker looks pretty easy. I think I could become a professional poker player and blew through $3,000 of savings. And I've never gambled before or since, but in that season, that was the, the fixation, which is another part that comes with it is your brain gets fixated on certain things and everything becomes kind of hypo, like hypomania um, is a, a mild, milder version of that. But I experienced the full mania in that with the type of bipolar I have. Um, hypersexuality is a part of that. So there's, um, if there's something that 
feels good to you to do, you'll do that a lot. Um, whether it's eating or sometimes alcohol, sometimes drugs, uh, sex is another one of those things, um, gambling, anything that has an impulse control um, aspect to it, it gets thrown right in there and the impulse control gets thrown right out. And bipolar disorder is alternating between these two extremes. Um, clinically, it's usually uh, four experiences in a year. So being depressed, and uh, manic, depressed, manic would be that cycling. And um, so it's a lot of, a lot of folks have clinical depression and clinical anxiety. Um, some folks have other uh, mental health challenges where they experience mania, but for bipolar, it's moving back and forth between those. And I am, uh, there's two different types. There's a, well, there's several types, but there's two main types, type one and type two. Bipolar type one comes with something that's called psychosis. When you experience the world ways other people don't experience it, whether you're hearing or seeing or and having a sensory input that other folks don't share. Um, and then uh, type two doesn't have that. Um, so for me, um, I'm, bi I'm, I'm bipolar one without the um, psychosis, but uh, bipolar two has got uh, closer to the hypomania experience we talked about when um, the high isn't quite as high into the mania, but the depression is still very much there. So when, I'm, when I was in college and then even in the military, um, I would have these experiences and have no context that anything was even going wrong. We didn't even consider um, mental health as an issue in our family growing up. Um, the idea of seeing somebody that, to talk about your, my mental state um, was was not even on the radar. Right. So as I'm experiencing this, I'm experiencing some of the voice of my father saying, you should be man enough to man up and stuff that down and and figure out how to work through that. And when I couldn't, and I couldn't figure it out, that sense of being smart got challenged. Because if you're so smart, how come you can't figure this out? And so those things compounded quite a bit. And it made um, made that experience very, very difficult. Wow. So that had to be quite jarring going from all the freedom that you had in college living there, and then all of a sudden being thrown into a military uh, situation. How was that? What was that like? I remember... Sent, uh, sending a letter to my dad one time, um, who's also a veteran, and and telling him this is the first time in my life I've known exactly what to do at every minute of the day to make everyone around me happy, <laughs> because it's just that regimented. And so there's that. The other thing is that there's a lot of physical activity that comes along with being in the military. There's a lot of the the um, getting back in shape and staying in shape, and and that helped me mitigate a lot of the mental health stuff because the increases in, in, in my body's ability to spread out the very thin level of chemicals it had to my brain was improved with some of the exercise. It wasn't um, completely um, removed or mitigated, but it was improved. And so those things worked out pretty well for me, actually. So did your marriage make it through the four years of military or not? Just to the end of it. So like literally, um, literally there's, when we moved out of, the, uh, transitioned out of the service, um, folks that are in the service know that there's this thing called a ditty or do-it-yourself move. The the movers came with the truck, and I didn't notice at the time, but they packed up all of my stuff, <laughs> and they packed up all of all of the things that were going to go to Arizona, and um, everything that made it onto the U-Haul truck that got driven to my wife's home state um, was all of her stuff, and so. I, I didn't recognize the pattern until I went to Arizona to get the job and said, Hey, I got the job. And the answer back was, uh, I'm not coming. 
So you were in Arizona, and then she was back where she was from, and I guess, did she file for divorce, and was it a quick divorce or not? Oh, yeah, she filed for a divorce, and I, right about the time I said I found the house for us to move into, I got the paperwork, like, basically the next day. And honestly, at the time, I don't think I had the, the mental or physical resources to myself to be able to do anything different other than just to accept it. All of my old coping and defense mechanisms immediately kicked back in. So the first thing is, this person says I'm a bad person. I've got to be a good person. So I did everything in my energy to try to overperform at work. But I was also struggling with my bipolar disorder. So that it was a lot of extra energy being spent trying to look really good at work. And then a lot more crashing and burning when I got home, only coming home to kind of an emptier space. Um which caused pain. And the only way that I really knew well, now that I was back home in Arizona that made sense to deal with pain was to start reaching out and um, starting to connect with, with women again. Um, but that, that moment um, started to become a turning point for me because I found myself back in my parents' house living in their pool house. When I say pool house, they had a pool and there was a little trailer next to it and I got to stay in that little trailer. And my parents as well-meaning as they are, that didn't understand much of this, a lot of that old family dynamic started coming back. And I kept telling myself, I've got to get out of here. I can't stay here anymore. So I had met somebody online and we had connected for one date and five seconds into it realized we were never going to get to connect. But we liked each other as people, you know, so um, we talked a lot. Um, she, yeah, she was living with her uh, family as well after coming back from college and also needed to get out. And so we found uh, an apartment and moved into that. Um, six weeks into living in that apartment, we realized we couldn't stand to live with each other, <laughs> but we stayed anyway, because we had a lease. And there was um, two master bedrooms in this apartment and um, she worked nights and I worked days, which meant I had custody of the kitchen over the nights and <laughs> she had custody of the days. And so we just paid our bills and you know, barely saw each other for a little bit and we're both content to be able to help each other get through. And her younger sister had just given birth to her son, Hayden, when her fiance left. And so she would come over to the apartment in the days and hang out with her sister while I was at work. Only when I came home, she uh, back to the apartment, she would stay and we got a chance to get to know each other and talk. And we developed a relationship and she let me play with Hayden and Hayden and I became really good friends. And then uh, we were we were married shortly after. So it was also very fast. And but also. Um, kind of this kind of God moving pieces in place um, that now that I'm at the place I am now in my life, I can see where the, where God was placing those pieces at the time. It just kind of felt like everything was just connecting uh, with dots that I didn't see that needed to be connected when they started. So when was the honeymoon over? Because at some point, you know, the, the all the baggage, all the things that we've brought into our marriage, you know, we the newness wears off and then all of a sudden that starts. So did that start coming back then, the bipolar, all of those things start coming back after so long being married to Heidi? Um, it was it was pretty quick, actually. Um, right about six months into being married when everything started to come back into it, when, it, when uh, I started falling back into um, the day-to-day um, survival mode, the day-to-day -day of being husband, of, of being father to Hayden, the day-to-day -day of going to work um, became routine. A lot of the the um, being in love was, we were still in love. We just weren't experiencing the euphoria of new love. And so that started to fall away a little bit. But I was determined to not make 
bad choices like I had made in the past. So this was once again, sucking it up and pushing it down and going through, but it did create um, the same type of relationship I had in, in uh, my first marriage where Heidi had to kind of balance these things. I had these, these manic episodes where I couldn't put any control over anything again and, and would um, have conversations till two or three or four o'clock in the morning while she's trying to sleep because she has to wake up and raise children the next day. And then in the depressive times, I would come home from work and, and while myself away and she would be alone having to raise our growing family with our, our daughters were being born at the time and, and, and moving forward. So it left her carrying a very heavy load by herself. And that over the course of time kind of wore things down more and more. Um, and meanwhile, I was deteriorating, deteriorating very fast. Um, it was after um, a failed suicide attempt that I had that I finally decided to reach out and try to get some help. And um, I went to a doctor and the doctor explained that um, uh, what I had experienced with the highs and the lows, it had a name, was called bipolar disorder and said, here's a course of treatment we can do. Here's some therapy. Here's some medication. Here's some things you can do in your life that'll that'll fix that. Uh, not fix it necessarily, but it'll help it manage it. And so I, I embraced all of those things. Um, started taking medication, started going to counseling, and then I started sleeping well. Um, and the sleeping really helped a lot because then I started thinking more clearly and I could continue this moving forward, exercising, changed my eating habits. And my life really made some drastic improvements very quickly. And armed with this new knowledge and all of these new tools, I finally found the source of all the problems in my life and I was finally cured. <laughs> yeah, that, that didn't last long. It wasn't very long from the time I was cured to the time I found myself right back into my own patterns and routines because I did something that a lot of folks that struggle with uh, mental health challenges do. They say, hey, I feel better. I don't need to take this medication anymore. Forgetting it's the medication that's helping that happen. And so once the medication goes away, then the sleeping goes away, then the thinking clearly goes away, and then you're right back into a lot of those patterns. I fell right back into the worst versions of me, and all the while, Heidi is still trying to maintain these things. So on May 27th, 2011, at 5.15 p.m., Heidi finally had enough. And so she left me taking half of our kids with her. And this this broke me. This, this absolutely broke me. I was... Um, I the pain that this brought to me about having my, my life feel like it's over and my marriage feel like it's broken and seeing no way of getting out of it and not knowing if I wanted one, uh, the pain of that moment brought to me to my knees, both physically and spiritually. Um, I remember um, falling in my knees on the front doorstep of my house, begging God to help me because I was so tired of trying and failing on my own and wrecking it. And for the first time in my life, I gave all that I had and all that I was to Jesus Christ. And in that moment, I could feel the very arms of God around me, holding me. And his spirit whispered in my ear, it's okay. I'm right here with you. You're not alone. You can ask for help. Earlier in our conversation, I said that I found uh, Jesus as my savior when I was five. This is the moment where I found him as my Lord. And Remember I said earlier that God started a series of events in motion that would ultimately save my life? Well, 17 years prior, in the middle of my hurt, um, I reached out for comfort to sleep with a neighborhood girl that I knew. Unbeknownst to me, she had a daughter. 
I met my daughter, Abby, for the first time about seven months before this happened. You see, we had just moved to Queen Creek, hadn't been out there very long. Uh, it was Halloween time and I was taking my kids out trick-or-treating. I went one street down and one street over, knocked on a door and a 16-year-old female version of me answered it. And that's how I met my daughter for the very first time. I looked behind her and I saw mom and mom's eyes went, and my eyes went, and that was it. Wow. And I knew. So it was just See, recognizing her, right? Right. Because uh, I have a very distinct um, facial features. My kids all look like me. <laughs> and they all they all look like me from like birth and all the way through. And like their, their childhood pictures next to mine look like the same kid all the way through. Gender doesn't matter. And so, yeah, I saw literally the 16-year-old female version of me at the door. So it, it was there was no question. And God put her in my life at the exact right time. Because you see, any earlier, and I would have been damaging to her because I wasn't, I would not have been the kind of person you would want to call dad. Let's put it that way. And frankly, there wasn't going to be an any later. Now, remember I said she lives a street over and a street down, and this is right around five o'clock. Um, and I'm on my knees on my front doorstep. Well, while I'm there, she drives by my house and sees me on my knees on my doorstep going home from school. And she calls me and she says, hey, dad, are you okay? And for the first time in my life, I said, no, no, I'm not. And she said, you know, you really shouldn't be alone right now. I, I want to come over and be with you, but I can't because I work in the children's program at this thing at my church called Celebrate Recovery. And I'd really, why don't you come with me? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I show up to this place, tiny little church, maybe 10, 15 people in it. And I'm looking around. I'm like, these people are weird. I mean, because they're all have pain. They're all struggling through something, but they're all celebrating. And they seem to be happy that they're there. And they seem to be um, connecting with something that's giving them joy. And I couldn't feel any of that. I'm like, this doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to get up. I'm going to leave the first chance I get. And they stood up to do this thing called a chip celebration where you go up to the front and you get a, um, a token or a chip for various links of victory over whatever your hurt habit or hang up that you're struggling with is. And I'm like, this is my chance. I'm going to get up and I'll walk to the aisle and everyone's standing. No one will see me. I turn to walk towards the middle and a guy my age turns and looks right at me, walks right towards me. And I'm like, please don't talk to me. Please don't talk to me, please. It's like the sibling song. It's the introvert song. It's similar, but it kind of goes through. I'm like, please don't talk to me. And he, but he doesn't. He gets to the end and he turns and he walks to the front of the room and he picks up a blue chip, which is the first day one newcomer chip. And he says, hi. And he gives his name. He says, I'm here because I have bipolar disorder and I don't know what to do. And I'm like, fine, I'll stay. <laughs> what is the odds that in 15 people on my first meeting, there's some other guy in his first meeting that has the exact same issue I have, only he was brave enough to walk up front and do something about it. So I stayed and I, I got my chip that night too. I went to this next thing they do there called an open chair where everybody sits in a circle and talks about stuff. And, you know, it, it, I just busted open like a pinata. It was bad. It was like snot bubble crying. It was just everything came out for the first time in my life. I actually short, shared as much of what I was feeling with somebody else that, that I've ever shared before because I never shared with anybody. And then as soon as I was done, I sat there in terror because I just realized everything I just said. And I looked up and these guys in the room, they just nodded their head and they said, thank you for sharing. And they said, next, and let the next person share. And if you're, if you're interested in learning more about this Celebrate Recovery thing, please reach out and find somebody because you'll never find a safer place in the world. I felt so safe at that point 
And that was the thing that started me on the road to, to really connecting with Christ, figuring out how to manage the stuff that I'm going through um, and how to, to really work on giving away my, my will and my life. So the decisions I make and the reasons I want to make them to Christ for his care and control, that was the starting point for a lot of that. Faith really didn't, and, and, and Christ really didn't come into our, our lives as a part of it until this moment, which was a great story because my youngest daughter, Olivia, was four years old at the time, and she went with Heidi when Heidi left. And on a Sunday, a few weeks after I got into recovery, um, my four-year-old daughter goes to my wife and says, let's go to church. And we're like, you've never been to church in your life. Where did that word come from? You know, so they go. And Heidi has this spotlight sermon. I don't know if you know what a spotlight sermon is. It's when you're sitting in church and God makes everybody disappear and puts a spotlight right on you and says, this is what I have to tell you. And he said to her, even if your marriage doesn't make it, your family has to go home. So she did. She packed everybody up, brought them home, got into my driveway on a Friday, right around 530. And so I took her bags out. We put them in the house. We got in the car and we all went to celebrate recovery before we ever went into the house. And we started this journey together where she got some healing and I got some healing and even our, our kids got some too. So how are you using principle eight in your life? Yield myself to God to be used to bring this good news to others, both by my example and by my words. I mean, how is God using you now? It's amazing to me to watch God constantly and continuously use the one thing in your life that caused you the most pain and anguish to be the very thing in your life that he uses you to bring um, strength, hope, and joy to other people. And that's that's what's happening with me. I'm able to work as what we call a mental health champion in Celebrate Recovery. Uh, and I'm, I, I'm a regional mental health champion over the Western United States. And what that means is I get to have conversations with churches and say, this is the value and the strength of talking about mental health and making it okay to have these conversations and make it as similar as talking about having a cold. Yes, I have depression. Yes, I, I have a schizoaffective disorder. So that people can remove the stigma that's around it and the fear of talking about it for how people might think of them and instead being open and honest about it in a way that helps them find healing. Now, not the type of healing where it magically goes away. Now, am I in, do I think God can do that if he wants? I think he can. He's God. But I also see him choose healing in different ways. A lot of times in obedience to him by stewarding your body the right way and your mind the right way, which involves seeing a doctor, maybe taking a medication, definitely taking care of yourself in a way that lets that happen. And so encouraging people in the church to get away from some of the ideas like uh, the Bible says we shouldn't be depressed. Well, the Bible doesn't say we shouldn't have clinical depression, you know, and that's a that's a way that the brain is made. Um, the same thing about anxiety. If you're experiencing um, a, a manic event or an anxiety attack, well, you just don't have enough faith. It has nothing to do with faith. It has everything to do with brain chemistry. We don't tell people who have diabetes that they have not enough faith because they take insulin. And we don't do the same thing with chemotherapy uh, with cancer uh, patients. So we, it, the brain is just another organ. And it's just another organ that's, that's working at a deficit for the way that it works. And so having that conversation and making it okay to be not okay in literally every aspect, but specifically in this one. Right now in the United States, one out of three people is struggling with a diagnosable mental health condition or a mental health challenge that they could seek professional help to get some support from, one out of three. So um, if, you're, if you're listening right now and you're having that struggle, um, you're not alone. 
there's there's so many resources out there. Um, the simplest thing you can do for a resource is just dial 988 and talk to the first person that gets on the phone. There's 24 hours a day. There are counselors and there that are trained that will support you and get you resources. And it's nationwide. So you have that access immediately. If you don't want to talk to someone because the phone is heavy, you can text 741-741. I'll say it again, 741-741. You, you can text somebody. So if you can't talk on the phone, you can still text somebody and connect. My realization is that God created bipolar disorder in me on purpose for his purpose. Because number one, it's a daily reminder I can't do this by myself and that I need people. And number two, it's a touching point where I can connect with people in a way that only other folks that are struggling this way can truly understand. So I'm not a mistake. I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. I'm uniquely designed this way and knit together my mother's womb before I was ever born. God knew that this would be the, the, the design of my brain. And now I'm finally coming into line with how he wants me to treat it. And that's, and then sharing that with as many people that will hold still long enough to talk about it. So that's kind of how Principal Eight's walking out in my life. Amen, brother. Well, what an amazing story, Dustin. I can tell you that you've blessed my heart just hearing it and hearing how God has worked in your life. Let me ask you one last question, and we're going to bring it to a close. So, you know, we have a lot of different listeners from different walks of life, and I can almost you said one in three struggle with mental health. So there's almost guaranteed someone is listening that's struggling with mental health. So what would you encourage that person if they say, I am in a really bad place, or maybe my emotions are really high and really low, maybe I've got bipolar, I don't know. What would you encourage someone that says, hey, I'm struggling, I need help? The first thing I would say is don't give up. Do not give up. Maybe you're a person that's listening right now that just doesn't feel like they've got another breath in them. One of the things I've noticed for a lot of people that are in that space is that they don't want to, to, to not be alive. They just don't want to be in pain anymore. And all of us can relate to that. You're not alone. So, so know that there are people that can sit alongside you that are, have experienced what you're experiencing or close to it and that care about you and that love you and that want you to continue. Don't give up. Reach out. Reach out, to, reach out to someone, connect with somebody that can get you connected to a higher power that does this well and does this and loves you while they do it. But please reach out because you'll be so glad you did. Thank you so much for having me. Dustin, thanks so much for sharing your life change story with us. Hey, if you are listening today and you are struggling with mental health issues, maybe you feel that you are the only one in this struggle. That is not true and you are not alone. If you need someone to talk to, just dial 988 and someone will answer that wants to talk to you. You can also text 741-741 to get information or start a conversation about mental health. Isaiah 118 says, come let us talk this over, says the Lord. No matter how deep the stains of your sins, I can take it out and make you clean as freshly fallen snow. Even if you are stained as red as crimson, I can make you white as wool. God wants healing in your life. He wants you to have peace and serenity. However, if nothing changes, nothing changes. See you next time. <laughs>